With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 237 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today for the UK's 37th most popular true crime podcast and striving for 36. The one where we raise an eyebrow and yawn at rubbish reviews knowing that those people are still listening every week, really. Big shout out, guys. Today's case is a very different one to any I've covered before, but it returns to a regular theme of this podcast, the striking contrast between the image we often like to portray to the world compared to the reality. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive club, which is April Braid, Mary Rose, Amy Blythe, Lara Wilkes-Sloan and Sharon Gorman. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. As well as bonus episodes and other exclusive content, all Patreon supporters can enter the amazing competition to win a fantastic central London hotel room in the CrimeCon Hotel for the Saturday night of CrimeCon. Join us now at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. This podcast is sponsored by Beer52. Frankly, the free case of eight craft beers you can order today from Beer 52 is about as much fun as it's possible to have outside of Rochdale Sauna. All you need to do is head to beer52.com slash truecrime to pay the £5.95 postage. If you aren't as keen on dark beer, choose the light option and it will soon arrive at your door with the magazine and the beery snack. Did you know that Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club with over 170,000 active members, including me? And once you join, you can pause or cancel at any time. It sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? If you like beer, you really can't lose. So go to beer52.com slash truecrime now and just pay the £5.95 postage to get your free case of eight craft beers, your magazine and your beery snack. That is beer52.com slash truecrime. This podcast is brought to you by Best Fiends. A bit like this podcast, with Best Fiends, the fun never ends. I love playing Best Fiends and it's never dull. There are always new levels, events, challenges, so it never gets stale. I really enjoy the puzzles. I know that you would too. And although the game is made for adults, you will enjoy the bright, colourful gameplay. And of course, all the cute characters that you collect during the course of the game. I play on my own sometimes, but also with friends and family all over the country. It always gets competitive. You know how it is, right? The other great thing with Best Fiends is that you don't need internet connection, which is ideal for me living in a remote area where the internet is always a challenge. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. No full-on guest a month and year today, it's just a year. It was the year when Terry Waite, the special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury in Lebanon, disappeared in Beirut whilst negotiating for the release of hostages. 
Everton won the first division title for the ninth time, the mighty Leeds United wouldn't have to wait too much longer for their next title triumph either. Michael Ryan shot dead 16 people in the Berkshire town of Hungerford and the Christmas Day episode of Coronation Street saw over 26 million people tune in to watch Hilda Odkin's final appearance on the soap. The best-selling songs this year were Rick Astley with Never Gonna Give You Up, Almost Sang It, and Starship with Nothing's Going to Stop Us Now. Did you get the year? It was 1987. Okay, so on to today's story. Manfield is a small village in the Richmondshire district of North Yorkshire. The closest major town to it is Darlington, which is around four miles east of the village. It lies close to the River Tees and is a pretty place amid gentle rolling countryside with a small population with that feeling that everyone knows everybody else kind of vibe. Think of the ITV show Heartbeat and you might be somewhere close to its image. The village is fairly limited in its amenities, a well-renowned pub as its cornerstone, a primary school, a village hall and a church. It's the sort of place with real community. This then made the strange incident which lasted for some 12 years all the more remarkable and saw Manfield's residents gripped by fear through a rather perplexing series of events. The strange events began in 1987 when Molly Christian, a widow of 73, received a letter to her bungalow which was named Meadowcroft and was simply signed Nerd. Mail can of course be an exciting thing to receive but for three years, the unfortunate Molly received a tirade of further letters, each seemingly becoming more and more hostile and aggressive in their tone. Some of the letters were of a really threatening nature, with specific threats being made to bomb her home. Imagine how terrifying this must have been for someone at 73 who lived a quiet and simple life and as far as she knew, had never had any enemies at all. Her bungalow became tainted by paint bombs, conifer trees were stolen from her garden and her windows were purposefully scratched. In a way this was worse than the letters as Molly knew that the person responsible had actually been to her house. She didn't feel safe. Molly reported these happenings to police who initially believed that she was merely the victim of juvenile pranks. Several of the letters had been written in different colour pens which to their minds at least, appeared to confirm their theory. Indeed, a young local boy was initially suspected. 11-year-old Jeremy Dodd lived in Manfield and the finger of suspicion fell on him, seemingly just because of his youthful age. The letter he had been accused of writing threatened to, and I quote, drop a bomb down the chimney of a cottage. Having been drawn into this riddle, Jeremy's parents, Shirley and Alan, understandably furious. My son was actually accused of sending that letter because it was written in coloured pens. I think the police thought it was a child's prank purely for that reason, said Shirley. Young Jeremy, however, was eventually ruled out of the equation on the basis he'd actually been on a school skiing trip in Switzerland at the time the letter had been sent. Then the Dodds family received a letter themselves of a particularly spiteful nature. The letter, which was sent specifically to Alan Dodds, accused his wife of having had an affair. His wife Shirley said that though her husband was truly shocked by the letters, 
he equally knew that there was no substance behind them and that it was not true. But if you receive such a letter, however strong your relationship, it would always create some doubt in your mind, wouldn't it? What the letters did do was create a huge ugly tide of suspicion within the previously tight-knit village. Shirley Dodd summed up the feeling of the time saying, I kept thinking, what had I done to somebody to get something like that? We were all very suspicious. Outside of your own house, you had to be very, very careful. You didn't know who was listening. The locals were beginning to suspect that the culprit was walking in their midst, and this certainly forged a culture of suspicion, which grew as the years went by. Yes, you heard right, years. Indeed, some of the recipients of the letters were now taking drastic action to avoid becoming further victims. Ricky Smith was a 39-year-old man who began to be targeted, with posters being erected in the village falsely claiming that he was a convicted rapist. He felt they had no option but to leave Manfield. Molly Christian, as mentioned earlier, also decided that enough was enough and placed her beloved bungalow up for sale. The bungalow received a lot of interest, as properties in the area generally do, and it was soon bought by Roy and Val Kellett, who moved in with their 21-year-old daughter Joanne. Whether or not the Kellets had been made aware of the real reason Molly had wanted to leave was uncertain, but in any eventuality, they would soon themselves experience similar torment. In 1991, their daughter Joanne rapidly became the target of multiple sexually abusive messages. She was accused of being a sex worker and her telephone number began to appear on flyers that were circulated all around the village, advertising the wide variety of services that she offered. Joanne was even sent a special Christmas greeting card which showed a half-naked woman holding a whip. The language inside was of a particularly explicit nature and strongly suggested that whoever was committing the acts, it was unlikely to be a child. The letters that arrived at the Kellett's home were addressed to Joanne Shagger Kellett, and this understandably left Joanne frightened about why she'd been targeted and apprehensive about what may occur next. The village's neighbourhood watch coordinator was Eric Collin. In the wake of the events suffered by the Kellett's, Eric began to advise the family about security equipment for their home, in the hope that it may deter whoever had been targeting the family. Eric would also help the village as a whole. Each day he would walk around the village and collect the barrage of offensive letters, which were generally scattered among hedgerows and bus shelters. For his efforts though, Eric soon became a target himself. In one letter, the mysterious writer had even attempted to deflect the blame onto Eric. It read, If you send another anonymous letter to my wife, I will kick you to Darlington and back by your balls. Police were alerted continually whenever letters were received by residents, but they struggled to pin down any firm suspects. They'd accumulated huge piles of the notes and letters that the residents had received since way back in 1987. In the background, and unbeknown to the villagers however, there was one man who had alerted the suspicion of the police, and he would prove to be the very epitome of the phrase, here's the last person you would expect to commit such malicious acts. Sergeant Mick Griffiths of the North Yorkshire Police later claimed that there was a man that had spiked police interest 
for at least three years during the campaign of terror. However, there was no concrete evidence which would allow the police to act. They were finally prompted into action in 1999 when 13-year-old Catherine Wayne, the daughter of the parish council clerk, Rona Wayne, was sent the pornographic magazine Parade Through the Post. It was accompanied by a handwritten note which read, We'll be watching you, a gift from Manfield. This was in reference to the fact that the family lived just outside the village. Now Catherine's mum, Rona, had previously been harassed by a man from Manfield, which led to the police arresting that person. That man was James Forster, a 68-year-old former Open University lecturer until his retirement in 1999. He'd also previously lectured in mine engineering at Nottingham University. His latter working years were awash with success, being promoted from staff tutor to senior lecturer and then even becoming a deputy regional director. He was clearly good at his job. (laughs) Sorry, silly me. I've just fallen into that trap that a work promotion equates to competence. Amazon mistake. The academic James Forster was perhaps considered as slightly eccentric. But to all intents and purposes, he was a pillar of the community. A well-respected and educated man. Curiously, Forster owned two properties in the village where he lived for 30 years but he steadfastly refused to live in his other home, called Four Oaks, until, as he said, the spirit of the previous occupant had left it. This rather bizarre behaviour perhaps displays a, well, a somewhat odd aspect of his character, don't you think? Nevertheless, he and his wife still used to attend the property on a daily basis, opening the curtains and mowing the lawn. Forster was the son of a mine worker, and had studied for a degree in applied science at Newcastle University, which he then followed up with a master's and a doctorate. This suspect was a far cry from the juvenile offender that the police had initially suspected. He was a familiar figure in the village, often cycling about in his tweed jacket, shirt, tie and flat cap, politely greeting passers-by. Forster had also been the clerk of Manfield Parish Council for 11 years, and had been a regular churchgoer. Upon Forster's arrest in 1999, police conducted a search of both properties, and Detective Constable Graham Stockton, who was working on the investigation, finally made the breakthrough. Finding what seemed to be an innocuous-looking piece of ripped paper tucked into a bundle of blank sheets within the filing cabinet, Stockton realised it to be similar to the note written to Catherine Wayne, the 13-year-old girl who received pornography. It was removed for forensic analysis, which found that it was a match to that note. As well as this, there were other incriminating factors. A gossip list was discovered, listing all those he'd written to, and a pair of latex gloves and stencils used in the formulating of the letters. A diary found also revealed Forster's somewhat sinister obsession with the Kellett family, and their daily movements. Some of the excerpts from the diary contain the names of the neighbours and information about them, many of whom later received abusive letters. Further proof, if it were needed, came in the absence of letters following Forster's arrest. And in August 2001, Forster was committed to Teesside Crown Court, where he would be tried for offences relating to malicious communications, sending indecent mail, 
and threatening to destroy property. Forster appeared at court as the respectable pensioner, smartly attired, and arguably far removed from the stereotypical offender to appear in that same dock. Certainly the early stages of the trial highlighted just how difficult it was to reconcile this man with the charges that lay before him. The court heard that an old lady had been threatened with a bomb and a 13-year-old girl was sent pornography. The allegations were difficult to comprehend, particularly to those that knew Foster and had known him for a number of years. John Shipley, the regional director of the Open University in the north of England, said, I regard Mr Foster as a most able academic. In all aspects of his professional life, I have found that he maintained the highest standards of personal discipline. His judgment was always sound and respected. I have never known him to act rashly or to be anything other than kind and tolerant in his dealings with others. I find it impossible to reconcile these characteristics with the nature of the charges levelled against him. The charges have been explained to me, but they do not fit the character of the man I know. A University of Northumbria lecturer told the court that she had known Forster for 20 years, both as a friend and a colleague. She said, He was certainly a very reliable, friendly person who worked in a very professional and courteous way. Prosecutor Michael O'Neill, however, told the jury that Dr. Forster led a double life. He said, The Manfield letter writer is not some drug-taking 13-year-old with time on his hands, or simply some bored housewife. It's Adam jumping in here. Yep, he really said that. And he continued, It is someone who is highly intelligent and capable of taking the kinds of precautions which we know were taken to avoid discovery. The prosecution's assertions here were clear. They had heard how Forster's academic prowess made it scarcely believable that he could be guilty. So in turning this to their advantage, they claim that the perpetrator would have had to have been of a certain level of intelligence due to the intricacy and secretive nature of the actions. After all, whoever the poison pen writer was, they had incredibly kept up this charade for over a decade. In response to the prosecution, Forster denied any type of obsession with his neighbours, despite clear evidence to the contrary. He even suggested that he was a victim of the letters himself. He told the court that he and his wife Elizabeth, who was seriously ill at the time, had fallen victims to the letter writer, who apparently threatened them both. He even said that the stress of this had prevented him proceeding with the purchasing of Molly Christian's bungalow, the one which was eventually bought by the Kellets. And this explained why the Kellett family were targeted. It is thought that having pit Forster to the bungalow, Forster turned his attention to them. It was the prosecution's belief that Forster began his campaign towards Molly Christian in the hope that it would drive her from her home, which ultimately he did succeed in, as he had wanted to buy her bungalow. Having missed out on this, however, Foster's anger appeared to intensify, and not just towards the older lady, but to the village as a whole. Police believe that of the 86 homes that were in Manfield at the time, the majority of them were targeted at some time or another. The jury heard that he was very much a Dr Jekyll or Mr Hyde character, acting on the one hand as an upstanding community figure, while simultaneously conducting an obsessive secret life with his bombardment of obscenities. 
Having heard eight days' worth of evidence throughout the trial, the jury were asked to retire to consider their verdict. Having deliberated for four hours, they returned guilty verdicts on three charges of sending indecent mail, three of threatening to damage property, and one of incitement to commit a burglary. Foster, as ever, was well attired in a smart blue suit, white shirt, red tie and blue pullover as he listened to his fate. He remained impassive throughout and displayed no signs of remorse for the fear he had caused within not just a small village, but the community of which he had been a part of for so long. The judge released him on bail prior to sentencing, as he ordered the completion of pre-sentence and psychiatric reports. He warned Forster that his granting of bail would not equate to a lesser sentence, and that all options, including imprisonment, were open to him. This is a very unusual case, said the judge, the like of which we might not see again. The conviction brought about a communal relief to the villagers of Manfield. The tiny village had been thrust into the national spotlight during the trial, for reasons that they would, of course, have preferred to have never experienced. The judge actually stated that Forster had cruelly and cunningly destroyed the fabric of the quiet village, saying, A miasma of suspicion must have spread through the lanes of Manfield so that neighbour suspected neighbour and friend began to doubt friend. Following the conviction, one villager pretty much summed up the mood that had engulfed Manfield during Forster's bizarre activities, saying, It was awful at the time because nobody knew who was behind those letters. People were suspecting each other and it divided the village. There were so many people affected and it was a difficult time for everyone. But as is often the case, not all were convinced as to the conviction. One man who had been friendly with Forster for a number of years said, In the years I've known him, he's done nothing wrong. He was always nice and polite and I wouldn't have thought him capable of doing anything like that. It's funny, isn't it, how some people are so seduced by outside appearances, the Facebook factor, that they still can't accept the reality of just what some people are capable of. On Friday, October the 12th, 2001, the reports completed, Forster was back in court to be sentenced. The judge gave him four months in prison, and ordered him to pay £3,000 in costs. The duration of the sentence was to some, perhaps not reflective, of how long he had inflicted torment upon the entire village. Certainly, the victims were in the main very unhappy at the sentence, and despite the age of Forster, it's easy to understand why people obsessed with treating every single crime with prison wanted a longer sentence. Nonetheless, the village of Manfield was at least happy to be finally removed from national focus as the residents busied themselves with the continuing of their lives. Upon his release from prison, this is what James Forster also did. Remarkably, he even moved straight back to the village following his release. Imagine that on day one. Very strange. Mercifully, however, Forster had at least appeared to have heeded his lesson and he lived peacefully in the village, refraining from committing any more of the acts which had defined the previous decade. It would be some 15 years later, in 2017, that he entered the public consciousness once more. At the age of 88, he died suddenly at his home. The local reaction to his death would have been mixed. 
But upon hearing the news, villagers commented that he lived the remainder of his life quietly with his wife Elizabeth. However, a man that ought to have gone to his grave with a good reputation would forever be synonymous with the most bizarre and motiveless crusade of fear. As one of the victims would later say, if this were an Agatha Christie mystery, then I'm sure the story would be a bestseller. I just hope that this is the last chapter. So what do you make of what we've heard today? A very strange tale, and is there something quintessentially British about it? Not just a beautiful village in which it occurred, but also a very bitter, unpleasant man, being unable to share his feelings, and so resorting to the cowardly form of attack via poison pen letters. I wonder if you know someone who on the outside is a pillar of the community. Oh, I hate that expression. But away from the public is something quite, quite different. I bet you do. Maybe if Forster had been able to talk and express his feelings more freely, then maybe he could have dealt with his issues more successfully. On a human level, there is something desperately sad, isn't there, about a man who lived a life like this? And of course, most importantly, the very real upset and distress he caused those affected. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. If nothing else, it's certainly never dull there. And to support the show and access bonus episodes and other exclusive content and be in the chance to win a central London hotel room, please join us at patreon.com slash UK True Crime where the party never stops. So that's all from me for another week. Until we speak again, don't be like the Kings of Leon. Stay interesting. Yeah, it's not going to work as a new catchphrase, is it? On that note of glorious failure, until next time, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, please stay classy. Cheerio. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.